All right, let's pray. You can open up your Bibles, um, if you haven't already, to Joshua 22. But we're going to pray tonight and then just um, jump in it. Dear God in heaven, we're thankful for this evening we get to gather here. Thank you that um, your word is, is eternal and speaks eternal truths from you, um, even to us tonight here. We pray that we would have ears to hear it and hearts to be shaped by it and wills to be turned by it. We pray that uh, your grace, your grace and your goodness in our life would be magnified even in this text tonight. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When you hear conflict, what do you hear? Uh, maybe, maybe you hear a good thing, but probably most likely when, when, when you hear the word conflict, like two people are having conflict, what probably comes to mind is something bad. Something bad is happening. Conflict is a bad thing usually. Usually conflict causes problems. You hear about conflict from the Middle East to the dining room, and it is usually a bad thing. It is, it is, it is something that's bad news. It, you maybe say to yourself, if there's one thing I could remove from my life, it would be conflict, and then a lot of problems in my life would go away. One of the big problems in my life is conflict. Well, I want to suggest to you tonight that perhaps... There is a good purpose and usefulness in conflict, but only if you have a mind to see it, a heart to believe it, and a will to follow God through it. Our our chapter tonight is striking. It's about conflict. And I'm going to read it all, and there's quite a few verses, so it's just mainly what we're doing tonight, maybe it's just reading, but I'm just going to read it for you, and I want you to ask ask a question while I read, is this Good conflict, or is this bad conflict? What kind of conflict do we see here? Now, to clarify, I, I want to be very upfront. I'm not preaching this message because I have unaddressed conflict with one of you that I know of. I, I think I've addressed all my conflict. So th- this is not me saying, oh man, I really can't wait for this individual to hear this because they really need to hear about conflict. No, that's not why I'm preaching this tonight. I'm preaching this tonight because this is literally the next verse that we have to talk about. Matter of fact, Monday morning I woke up saying, I don't want to teach about conflict this week. But here we are. And this is God's good purpose for us tonight to learn about conflict. But I'm praying for you in this passage. As I've studied this passage, I've become uh, very determined to preach this passage well. And I've thought about it over and over again, gone over it again and again, because I want to do it well, because I think the way you understand conflict, and particularly what you can learn about conflict, even from our passage tonight, could be critical and life-changing to you. And 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 I pray that through this passage, we would be changed in the way we deal and pursue conflict. So let's, let's read. Once again, the question is, is this good conflict or is this bad conflict? It's Joshua 22. Joshua 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the responsibility of the commandment of Yahweh your God. And now Yahweh your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. So now turn and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only keep yourselves very carefully. 
to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you to love Yahweh your God and to walk in all of his ways and keep his commandments and cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their tents. Now to the one-half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua gave a possession among their brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So when, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. And he spoke to them, saying, Return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with very many clothes. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers." Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had possessed, according to the commandment of Yahweh by the hand of Moses. And they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the entrance of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to us, to the sons of Israel. Then... The sons of Israel heard of it, and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. Just pause for a second there. Those are some pretty intense words. Go out to war against your own people? And notice also, did you see that altar of large size? Just keep... Just before we keep reading, put your hand here so you don't lose your spot and turn over to Deuteronomy 12. Turn over to Deuteronomy 12. It's just a little bit to your left in the Bible. Just to give you some context before we keep going, before we keep reading, what's going on here? We need to understand what this altar means or what Israel thinks it means and why they're going to war over this altar. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 2. Uh, Yahweh says this to the people of Israel in the book of the law, You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under, the, and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut the graven images of their gods in pieces and destroy their name from that place. You shall not do thus towards Yahweh your God, but you shall seek Yahweh at the place which Yahweh your God will choose from all of your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you shall come and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd of your flock. There also you And your household shall eat before Yahweh your God and be glad in all that you send forth your hand to do, in which Yahweh your God has blessed you. Notice the rule. One altar. One altar to bring your gifts. 
But jump over really quick to Deuteronomy 13. Turn over to Deuteronomy 13, verse 12. Deuteronomy 13, verse 12. Uh, Moses continues, If you hear in one of your cities, which Yahweh your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some vile men have gone out from among you and have driven the inhabitants of their city astray, saying, Let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. Then you shall inquire and search out and ask thoroughly. Behold, if it is true... And the matter is confirmed that this abomination has been done among you. You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city, Israelite city, with the edge of the sword, devoting it to destruction and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Verse 16, then you shall gather all of its spoil into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a burnt offering to Yahweh your God, and it shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Notice, if any city builds any other altar to worship any other God, you treat them like Jericho. You treat them like I. You treat them like Achan and his family. That's how you treat them. Jump back over to Joshua, Joshua 22, Joshua 22. Let's keep reading. This is what's going on here. Joshua 22, verse 13. Then the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of, of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with them ten leaders, one leader of each father's household from each of the tribes of Israel, and each one of them was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. So they came to the sons of Reuben, and to the sons of Gad, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of Yahweh, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following Yahweh this day, by building yourself an altar to rebel against Yahweh this day? Is the iniquity of Peor too small a thing for us, from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although there was a plague on the congregation of Israel? Yet you are turning away this day from following Yahweh. Now it will be that if you rebel against Yahweh today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of Yahweh, where the tabernacle of Yahweh dwells, and take possession among us. But do not rebel against Yahweh, nor rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of Yahweh our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in, in the things devoted to destruction and the indignation and indignation fall on all the congregation of Israel. But he was not the only man to breathe his last in his iniquity. Verse 21, Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the thousands of Israel. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh. The Mighty One, God, Yahweh. He knows, and may Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion, or if in an unfaithful act against Yahweh, do not save us this day. If we have built for ourselves an altar to turn away from following Yahweh, or if to perform a burnt offering or grain offering on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may Yahweh himself require it. 
But truly, we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel? And Yahweh has made the Jordan a border between you and us and your sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad. You have no portion in Yahweh. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing Yahweh. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the service of Yahweh before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in Yahweh. Therefore, we said, it will also be that if they say this to us or our generation or to our generation in time to come, then we shall, we shall say, see the copy of the altar of Yahweh, which our fathers made not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice. Rather, it is a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against Yahweh and turn away from following Yahweh this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering, or for sacrifice beside the altar of Yahweh our God, which is before his tabernacle. So Phineas the priest and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the thousands of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the sons of Manasseh spoke. And it was good in their sight. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the sons of Reuben, and to the sons of Gad, and to the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that Yahweh is in our midst. Because you have not committed this unfaithful act against Yahweh, so then you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of Yahweh. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad, from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the sons of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the word was good in the sight of the sons of Israel. And the sons of Israel blessed God, and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar witness, or literally, Ed. For they said, it is a witness between us that Yahweh is God. It is a witness. Now, I read all of that because I just want you to see it all. It's, there's kind of this uncomfortable feeling you get all the way through, isn't it? And you're, you're, you're not able really to exhale until, almost until you get all the way to verse 31. And they finally say, what do they say? They say, you have not turned away from God. No, this is a sign that Yahweh, our God, is truly, what? In our midst. He is present with us. This is a good thing. And they bring back a good report. Here's, here's my suggestion to you tonight. Some conflict is good conflict. Some conflict is godly conflict. Some conflict is because of the presence of God to do something good for us and in us. 
And just as the children of Israel followed a little bit of an investigation, let's do a little investigating ourselves as well. Let us find the evidence of godly conflict here, even in this passage. The evidence of godly conflict. Godly conflict will reveal itself in certain ways. And I, I think we see these ways even in this passage right here. Let's look at what it revealed, what, what reveals itself to be godly conflict. First, the first evidence of godly conflict that we see, it reveals your love. Godly conflict reveals who you love. What do you love more? Do you love God or do you love God's blessings? Do you love God or do you love the things that come your way because of God in your life? What do you love more? Conflict that is of God and from God reveals what you love and who you love most. Wait, just to kind of give you just kind of a little bit of background here. Remember, we, we are now crossing into the, the final section. You could say the final bullet point in the sermon of Joshua. Joshua is a sermon. It's, it's, a, it's a sermon that Joshua, the writer of Joshua is preaching to bring home a message. And this is his final bullet point in the sermon. Don't worry, this is not our final sermon in Joshua. I know you're all worried about that. Uh, but just to give you a summary where we're at right now. A number, uh, Joshua 1 through 5 talks about entering the land. Joshua 6 through 12 talks about conquering the land. Joshua 13 through 21 talks about distributing the land. And now in this final section, we have in 22 through 24 talks about possessing the land. How can you possess the land? And this is really where all of Joshua was driving for. All of Joshua is driving at, how can I keep on possessing the land now? How can I keep having peace? How can I keep on enjoying God's faithfulness in my life? And the basic message, the basic point that the the preacher of Joshua is trying to make is, look at the faithfulness of your God. He has been utterly faithful. You remember from Joshua 21, 43 through 45, right? All of God's promises have been fulfilled. God has been faithful in his promises, but his faithfulness now is going to begin demanding things. Who will you love? Your God has been faithful and he has shown love so amazing, so divine, but now he demands your soul, your life, and your all. Who will you serve? Who do you love? The only path to lasting peace to lasting possession and something the world cannot give, the only way to true and lasting peace is to love your God more than anything else, including peace. The only way to find true and lasting peace is to love God more than anything else, even peace itself. You have to love him more than his benefits. Matter of fact, we see this. We see this, this critical aspect of loving God. You must love God. Conflict will reveal your love. You remember what the, the Israelites said in, in chapters 22, 4 and 5. They give these commendations to these tribes. They've been faithful to support their brothers as they've crossed over the river and, and entered into the conquest with them. They've been faithful to all of the things that they promised God that they would do. And now they're going on to their possession. And what is the one thing? 
thing Joshua pleads with them to remember. It's the one thing to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and all of their soul, verse 5 tells us. And this is basically what Joshua is saying. You are going to your possession. You are going to your rest. But the only way to find true rest, true possession, true lasting peace in your life is to continue where you have started. And that is with loving the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. He has been faithful to you. Follow him this day. Only those who love God more than peace find peace. And conflict reveals who you love and what you love. Do you love God or do you love peace? Let's look at another evidence of true godly conflict. It not only reveals your love, it reveals your authority. It reveals your truth, the highest truth that commands your life. Conflict reveals what you believe. Conflict reveals your authority. What, what do you make of Israel's reaction in verse 12? Is that, I mean, what, what in the world's going on there? Right? Is, that, is that an overreaction, maybe? I mean, just go off to war? Just because you heard a rumor? Seems a little bit drastic, maybe, right? Is it an overreaction? Or, let me submit to you, is it an evidence of true spiritual health? That you care about sin? It's evidence that God's word is not just being heard with your ears, but it's being understood with your heart. Is that what it's an evidence of? These people in Israel actually care about the word of God. And it has shaped their affections. It's shaped their will. It's shaped their thinking about all things of life. Is this an overreaction or is this an evidence that actually they're spiritually healthy? When... When sin disturbs you, when sin alarms you, it may just be a sign of spiritual health. That is what Deuteronomy 13 is for. It's to give you kind of an alarm, saying something is wrong. If you see an altar, something is wrong. People may be turning away from God, and you should go investigate. That's what alarms are for, right? Well, what's the point? What's the point of having uh, dashboard lights on, on your car, in your car, if you always just assume, oh, it's probably just a sensor issue. I'll just keep driving. It's always a sensor issue in my car because I have old cars. I'll just keep driving. What is the point of having dashboard lights if you never lean into them, look into them, understand them? Oh, why, why is this conflict happening? Well, it's because these tribes, these Western tribes believe the Bible. They simply believe the Bible. Notice, they believe what the Bible says about the plurality of altars. Verse 16, it's, it's a sign that you're turning away, that you're unfaithfully acting towards the Lord. Verse 18, it's a sign of turning away. It's, it's a sign of rebellion. They believe the Bible. It might just be one altar, but it's evidence of a, of a, a loose conviction about Scripture, perhaps. This is signs, this is evidence of believing the Bible. But notice also, the Western tribes are, are in conflict here with these other tribes, because not only do they believe the Bible, but they also remember history. They have memory of what happened when they didn't look to the Bible stubbornly and persistently. 
right? Uh, the, the verse 16, uh, unfaithful acting, that, that's used two times. That word's used two times. You've acted unfaithfully. It refers to acting disloyally or, or violating your covenant obligations. Now, that is the same verb that was used to refer to all of Israel in the sin of Achan in Joshua 7, right? We remember what happened last time someone acted unfaithfully. Matter of fact, they say it there, right? Verse 20, Achan, verse 20, Achan, uh, the son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully in these things and was devoted to destruction. And indignation also fell on the entire congregation. And then notice also, uh, the Western tribes are in conflict here because not only do they believe the Bible, not only do they remember history, but the scripture has interpreted and made applications and conclusions about their history to them. They know now in their heart that sin is not just innocent. Sin carries consequences. Sin will always take you, as I always remember growing up, sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you there longer than you want to stay. That's what sin does in your life. And they have learned this through Scripture by their experience. They have learned this at Peor, which we didn't talk about in Joshua. This is a story from Numbers 25. It's when the children of Israel lust after the gods and, 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 and the wicked idolatry of Moab, and they, they pursue prostitutes from from the Moabites, and, and the only way they got the, the plague to cease in that moment was when this very same Phineas took a spear and thrust it through one of the prostitutes. And, and that's the only way they could stop it. And notice, they even say here, in that, consequences from that sin still linger on, in verse 17, to this day. Consequences of sin linger. Or how about Achan in verse 20, right? We remember the story of Achan. Secret individual sin never has secret or individual consequences. That's the story that they learned from Achan. And notice in verse 18, they're basically saying to these tribes, you may sin today, but all of us will suffer tomorrow. Secret sin will affect more people than just you. Now notice here, when, when God's word is your authority, it will lead you to conflict because you know what the Word of God says about sin and its consequences. And you love God more than you even love peace. And it will lead you to conflict. But is this all just an overreaction? Could Israel have done this better? Hardly. I would say Scripture teaches us a very serious understanding about sin. And we probably don't deal with sin as seriously as we should. And this, this is a response of sin that is sobered by Scripture and not softened by the world. It's sobered by Scripture and heated up by the love of God even. Uh, scripture, once again, in your life will lead you to conflict in your life if you actually believe it and do what it says. And sometimes I would suggest to you, Christians, if they're going to follow God and obey God's word, they will find themselves in conflict. Matter of fact, you can look all through the New Testament and find conflict for the Christian. Jude 15 says we are to convict 
2 Timothy 4.2 says we are to rebuke. Uh, Romans 15.4 says we are to admonish. Galatians 2.11 says we are even sometimes to oppose. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.14 says we're to solemnly charge. Basically, if you, if you don't have people in your life that are willing to have conflict with you, you don't have true friends, true Christian friends in your life if they do not sometimes pursue you in conflict. It is a sign of love for God and love for his word, and I would also suggest love for you. But we should remember all of this conflict is done with a gentleness, of course, definitely is done with a gentleness. I I think of um, Galatians 6.1, brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Notice when you're, when you're restoring, when you're in conflict, you do it with gentleness and also with fear, trembling, right? You do it with gentleness because you do not want them to turn away from you. You do it with sobriety and and carefulness because you do not want to fall into temptation, to pride, to anger, to vengeance perhaps. And and here, if we turn back to Joshua 22, right? There is a, a vigilance that should come into our life because of the word of God. But it shouldn't be a viciousness. There is an alarm that should be in our life because of the word of God. But it shouldn't result in arrogance. There should be a gentleness and also a carefulness that you do not fall into sin as well. But let's look at another evidence, another evidence of godly conflict in life. Not only does it reveal your love, not only does it reveal your authority, but it also reveals your brotherly love. It reveals your affection for sinners or who you perceive to be sinners. The way you go about your conflict will be revealed as either godly or ungodly by your brotherly affection and love. What does worldly conflict do? What is the goal of worldly conflict? Worldly conflict has a goal of separation. It has a goal of isolation. It has a goal of removing someone or something from you. It has a goal of excluding someone from yourself. That is what worldly conflict is trying to do. It's trying to remove someone from you. So you're having conflict with them. But godly conflict is exactly the opposite. And that's what we see in our passage. Godly conflict is this desire to reunite. It is a desire to draw back in. It's a desire to bring in. It's a desire to draw near. Notice Israel's brotherly love here. Verse 19 in particular. They they plead with them not to follow sin. But then notice also how they plead. They plead with the, with the lines of brotherly love, true affection, desire to bring in, to draw near. They, they say in verse 19, hey, if this land is causing you to sin, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're, the society that you're in is causing you to stumble and serve other gods, then cross back over the land. Notice their eagerness for unity with their fallen brother. They're eager for them to come back. Or notice, take a possession among us. Notice their generosity their generosity and their affection as well. Listen, if if it's your land, share some of mine. Take some of mine. Notice their sincerity as well and their affection. Come back, they say, they plead. Come back for your good as well. You can't see it, but literally there in 19, take possession for yourselves among us. This is for your good, for your benefit. There is a brotherly love, a brotherly affection. 
questions. And it's a question for you. What does your conflict look like? Is it a godly conflict where you are willing to lay aside your calendar, your priorities, your problems, to seek and earnestly seek to help someone in problems? Where suddenly you take time out of your day to be with them in their problems and their conflict? Is, is that what your conflict looked like? Does it demonstrate brotherly affection and love like we see here? Notice, notice also, this is interesting to me, after they realize that the altar is not sin, what do they do? They rejoice. Notice this, this is also a sign of true brotherly love and affection, right? You are happy to be wrong. I, I thought I saw something going on there. I thought you were in sin, but I'm thrilled to know that you're not. And and this was never about removing you. This is just giving me greater and greater joy because I know that you are not in sin. Godly conflict looks like that. It rejoices in repentance. It rejoices when sinners come home. Or to say it like this, godly conflict is God-like. Just like Luke 15. God rejoices in sinners coming home. But let's look at another evidence. It reveals also, I would suggest to you, godly conflict does, it reveals your humility. Or lack thereof. Godly conflict reveals your humility. Here's an idea for you. Conflict provides you with an opportunity. It provides you with an opportunity that perhaps you don't get every day of your life. It's a glorious opportunity that you should take advantage of. Conflict provides you with an opportunity to humble yourself before your God, and before other people. That is a glorious thing to be able to do. Conflict provides you with the opportunity to seek the glory that comes from dust. Godly conflict provides you an opportunity to get down where you belong in humility before your God. It is a joy to the humble Christian to do, to get humble. Notice how these eastern tribes react, because, by the way, there can be two sides of godly conflict. Notice how they react when they are, get this, wrongly accused. Humbly. They react humbly. They, they first off, state an open conscience before God and man. Right? They, can, they, they swear by God. As a matter of fact, the word they use there in verse 22 is perhaps a superlative form. God, the greatest God. God, the God of gods. The mighty one. God, Yahweh. They use all of the names of God. And they're swearing by Him. And notice what they say. They say, He knows. And the sense of this verb is, He continually knows. And He knows piercingly. He knows our conscience and our heart. And they even have a willingness to be revealed by others as well. Notice, may Israel itself also know. May you guys know what God knows. Could you say that to someone in your conflict? If only you could see what God sees in me. Because I am humble before God. I love the passage of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. He He can act and behave with humility before believers that are mistreating him. Why? Because his conscience is cleared by the court of heaven. And he has nothing against himself personally. And so therefore he can, he can lower himself and humble himself to be with sinners that are mistreating him. 
And I would suggest the same to you. Humility before people, even when they have wronged you, can only come from first having a humble attitude and heart towards your God. And conflict will reveal this. When you are humble before God, your conflict will reveal a willingness to be humble. Notice, notice, they are eager, they are eager to acknowledge the seriousness of sin. They are eager to say, hey, verse 22, if we have done this, do not save us. Or verse 23, if we have done this, may God require it of us. Which is basically them saying, may God just unleash all of his curses on us. No, conflict reveals your humility towards the danger of sin. We totally agree that this is sin, and we totally agree that it is dangerous, and we want no piece of sin. That is their true humility. Notice, you, you know your true love for God and your hatred for sin based on how you react to conflict in your life. When God is most important to you, and when sanctification from sin is important to you, conflict is never the same in your life. Not at all. Matter of fact, you can even respond even to wrong conflict with thanksgiving. I agree with you, sin is terrible, and I want to be loosed and freed from it myself. How do you react when you're in conflict? Are you defensive? Are you evasive? Are you deflecting? Are you defeated? Are you bemeaning? How do you react when you are in conflict? It shows your humility towards God and your humility towards sin. Conflict, you could say it another way, reveals your sanctification. Are you willing to know about yourself? And are you willing to be known by others? Or is that too much for you? Are you willing to be corrected even if they're not right? Because of humility. Let's look at another, uh, another evidence of godly humility. It reveals also your desires. A godly conflict reveals also your desires. It, it reveals what you demand. It, de- it, it reveals what you must have. It, it reveals what you cannot live without. What you are willing to go to conflict to is often your God. Notice, both tribes, and this is how we get to the real irony of this passage. Did you notice this? Both tribes actually want the same thing. They actually want the same thing. This is a very unique conflict, actually. They both want true faithfulness to Yahweh. They both want to keep true faithfulness to Yahweh. The Western tribes want this. They want true worship. They want true fellowship that is only found in the one way that God has prescribed You are only supposed to come through one altar. And it's the same way with us. God has not changed. You only worship God through one person, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. God never allows individualistic, just how I feel kind of worship. That is Canaanite worship, to worship God as you feel like worshiping. You always are to worship God as he commands you to come, and that is through Christ Jesus. That's what the Western tribes want, right? True worship cannot have sin, cannot have apostasy, cannot have personal preferences in some ways. True worship has to come to God the way God says to come to Him. But what do the Eastern tribes want? What do they desire? They desire true worship as well. They desire true faithfulness as well. But they can only find this true worship through unity. Uh, the, The people on the Western shore 
need to know that we are just as much Israelites as them. We have just as much of a claim on God and his worship and his tabernacle as them. We want to worship as well. And we cannot have this worship if we are separated. They fear being cut off from Israel. Why? Because that will result in apostasy for their children. But notice, both of the tribes want one thing. They want to keep worshiping the Lord faithfully. And that is why they are willing to have conflict. And look at that. Your desires are revealed in your conflict. Let's move to a last point. Godly conflict, it reveals your love. Do you love God or do you love his blessing? It reveals your authority. What causes you to go to war? It reveals your brotherly love. It reveals your humility, your sanctification. It reveals your desires. But think about this. Godly Conflict reveals your protector. Godly conflict actually reveals your protector and your protection. My favorite part of the whole chapter is verse 31, where they're saying, Today we know that Yahweh is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against Yahweh. So then, you have delivered the sons of Israel from whose hand? The hand of Yahweh. This means God's deliverance from his own judgment. The children of Israel are instruments in preserving the entire nation from God's judgment. How? Through conflict. You are a source of delivering us from God. Think about that for a while. What in the world is going on there, right? Sometimes God sends conflict your way to test and reveal your faithfulness, doesn't he? Right? Uh, Do you love me more than these blessings, right? Do you love my word more than your comfortable life? Sometimes God sends conflict your way for that reason. And sometimes God sends conflict your way to grow you. But sometimes God sends conflict your way to help correct or establish or strengthen you to protect you from his own judgment. Think about that. God sends conflict through other people to protect you from himself. So that you don't have to suffer the consequences of sin. God sends conflict to deliver you. That is ultimately, that is ultimately the peace and the mercy that we enjoy in Christ. God sends conflict on Christ so that we will not have conflict with him anymore. So that we will have peace with him forever. And that is practically why God often graces you with conflict in your life so that you can be delivered from the consequences of foolishness and worldliness. That is a great and wonderful God that we serve. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of it and the privilege to read it out loud and to understand it. And we pray now as we go to small group that we would be blessed through the conversation around it. We'd be strengthened and that our minds would be shaped and changed to not think of our world and our conflict the same way anymore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.